0: the Athenaeum is pleased this evening to partner once again with the Royal Oak Foundation, the American membership affiliate of the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Royal Oak members enjoy unlimited access to more than 500 historic houses and gardens under the Trust's care. And if you would like to learn more about Royal Oak... Please speak with Kristen Sarley after the talk. Kristen, where are you? It's me, actually. What's that? It's me, not Kristen. Oh, don't, back up. Okay, (laughs) speak with the next voice that you will hear. Okay. We would also like to acknowledge Freeman's Auction House for generously supporting tonight's program. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Jenny McCahee, Program Director for the Royal Oak Foundation, who will introduce tonight's speaker.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Stacey. Um, I would just like to welcome the Royal Oak members and also the Athenaeum members. I always say that if I lived in Boston, this would be the first place I joined. This is such an amazing space. And I'm so happy that, that the Boston Athenaeum has continued to champion our wonderful partnership with lectures by bestselling authors and scholars. Our co-sponsorship has flourished during the past 16 years. I've been here for a lot of them, and it is great that we have had popular speakers return as they publish new books and research new scholarship. In fact, tonight's speaker is a great example of that as she spoke here to sell out crowds in 2012. Um, I just wanna point out, uh, Roger said the most lovely things about the Royal Oak Foundation, but I'd just like to point out that one of our holdings is Chartwell, which some of you may be familiar with. It's Winston Churchill's house. Um, and i just like to say that the National Trust, they may own all those extraordinary buildings and a lot of the contents, but they don't owe the contents of everything, and they don't own the contents at Shartwell. So the collection of Churchill's personal artifacts and mementos allow visitors to learn more about um, this Prime Minister, and it's kind of sad to know that... Royal Oak well it's a good thing that Royal Oak has decided that Americans should lead the charge to keep Churchill at Chartwell and that's one of the projects that we're working on to ensure that the wartime prime minister's most precious things like his desk his the photos on his desk his red boxes and all of those things stay at the home and are not sold at auction So I'll just say, like the Boston Athenaeum, private organizations that raise money for new scholarship and things like that, uh, it's wonderful to be in a room of like-minded individuals. So thank you all. Tonight, I am delighted to highlight the newest scholarship. Sally Bedell Smith is a noted author, and as I mentioned, uh, and I'm proud to say, a Royal Oaks speaker and member. I feel like everyone should know Sally after her recent coverage in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Town & Country, Vanity Fair, Us Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Good Morning America, Today Show, CBS Morning Show, Good Morning Britain, MSNBC with Chris Matthews, it goes on and on. I have to say, if you don't know who Sally is and about her book, I almost should say to you, where have you been? (laughs) A contributing editor at Vanity Fair since 1996, she previously worked at Time and the New York Times, where she was a cultural news reporter. She is the author of best selling biographies on William S. Paley, Pamela Harriman, Diana, Princess of Wales, John and Jacqueline Kennedy, and Bill and Hillary Clinton. Her last book, Elizabeth the Queen The Life of a Modern Monarch, became a bestseller and the basis for her Royal Oak Lecture here in 2012. Of course, being an American writing about a British royal family member makes her work quite unique and her approach is fresh and revealing. She said in a recent interview for the Royal Oak Newsletter that she calls His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales's life improbable in the book title because you'd expect him to follow the straight line that was laid out for him as heir to the throne, but instead his life has taken so many twists and turns, some of them tragic, some of them groundbreaking, and tonight she will talk about that. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished speaker.
2: Wow, a full house, can you hear me? Good, thank you, Jenny. That was a very gracious introduction and I love being back here. I especially love this room, which I think is one of the most magnificent places in our country. And um, I love what the Athenaeum does. And I also heard recently from a friend who's a member that um, some benefactor ensured that people could bring their well-behaved dogs to the Athenaeum. And, uh, and our friends do, in fact, bring their dog here, who is a great favorite, especially in the kitchen. Um, so thank you all for coming on a rainy night. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here. For much of his life, the Prince of Wales—hello, it's there already. For much of his life, the Prince of Wales has been profoundly misunderstood, stereotyped as an old fogey, and blamed for the unhappiness of the late Princess Diana during their turbulent 11-year marriage. But he is equally the man who counted Joan Rivers as a friend and affectionately called her Miss Potty Mouth. He's also a man uh, to whom the TV and film star Idris Elba, uh, a stringer bell in the wire for those wire aficionados, um, he owed his start in life with a $2,000 grant from one of Charles's uh, charities. Charles was also cheered as Charlie, my darling, by unemployed workers in a poor corner of Scotland and whose son, Prince William, just wished that people would give him a break. I thought I knew Prince Charles pretty well after writing about Diana and about the Queen, but it wasn't until I examined him close up that I began to appreciate the forces that have shaped him and the stunning array of his interests and pursuits, not to mention his accomplishments. To merely skim the surface, He has created scores of charities to benefit underprivileged youth, poor farmers, and even endangered red squirrels. (laughs) He wrote nine books and contributed to more than a dozen documentaries. He's been an active and engaged patron of more than 400 organizations, including the National Trust, whose $1.3 million restoration of Knoll he considers one of the most important in England. He founded schools for architects, artists, teachers, and craftsmen. He built Poundbury, a model town where thousands of people of all income levels could live and work side by side. Quite literally, people in subsidized housing live next door to people who've paid a million pounds or more for their homes. It's also a place where the streets were designed for pedestrians rather than cars. He launched a successful line of food and other products called Dutchie Originals. He restored more than 65 buildings in the old quarter of Kabul, Afghanistan, where he also created a traditional arts institute um, and that sells its wares all over the world. They even furnished uh, a suite. At the Connaught Hotel in London, he transformed Dumfries House, which is a crumbling, which was a crumbling estate in Scotland, and he turned it into a hub of training, employment, and tourism. He is a licensed pilot, trying, uh, trained to fly jets as well as helicopters. He also takes pride in being a watercolor artist, and he sells his lithographs for more than, for $4,000 and higher, to benefit his charities. To an unexpected degree, he has also relied on the United States for inspiration and guidance, including advisors and financial supporters. He has said that he likes new world energy, and he appreciates American for their entrepreneurial spirit. I also learned how different he is from his mother. As the longest reigning and oldest monarch in British history, the Queen is unique. Charles, however, is an original. When I asked his cousin, Lady Pamela Hicks, which parent he resembled, she hesitated then joked, I think he must be a changeling. (laughs) While the Queen is a model of serenity, stability, and continuity, Charles is a bundle of quirks, restless energy, and insecurities. Since taking the throne at age 25, the Queen has followed the strict guidelines of a monarch, carrying out her duties with discipline and diligence. Charles has, has had a more ad hoc life, mapping out his, um, his duties as he went along. The queen has spent a lifetime concealing her thoughts and even her mundane likes and dislikes. Charles, on the other hand, has left a trail of fervidly held and often controversial opinions and personal preferences. My challenge in writing about the queen was to part the curtain and to show what she's really like behind her inscrutable facade. For Charles, I needed to get my arms around his sprawling life and to make sense of the events and individuals, some of whom are very little known, who had influence on him. I needed to understand the panorama of his interests and to show the threads of his thinking and and to explain how he changed over time and how, in other ways, he remained consistent. Nobody was paying much attention to Charles five years ago when I started my work. He was kind of a blurry figure figure in the background, but he was actually hiding in plain sight, ready to be discovered. I wasn't prepared for such a long journey to understand this complicated and compelling man, even longer than my book about the queen, and she's 22 years older than he is. I spent four years traveling far and wide, interviewing some 300 people, watching him in action at home and overseas, visiting his residences, having a little fun by attending private dinners at Buckingham Palace and St. James's Palace, and I also toured the projects that make him proud. The three words in my subtitle reflect what I found that he is a man of surprising passions and confounding paradoxes, and that despite his birth nearly 70 years ago as heir to the British throne, his life has taken many unforeseen twists and turns. Soft on the outside, Charles has what one of his cousins called an inner moral hardness. In his case, more than most, the experiences of his childhood were crucial to setting the course of his life, but not necessarily in the ways that his parents expected. He found comfort in the arms of his nanny, Mabel Anderson, and in the company of his grandmother, the Queen Mother, who he said taught him how to look at the world. She also indulged him, and she stimulated his appreciation of art and music. His duty-bound mother was preoccupied by her work. And Prince Philip, as head of the family, focused on toughening up his elder son, who he considered too sensitive. Charles was the first heir to the throne to attend school outside the palace. But he was inevitably marked out as different at the Hill House School in London, where all the boys obediently, there we go. Okay, all the boys obediently bowed to his mother during field day. When he was only eight years old, his father transferred him to Cheam uh, in Hampshire. Are we on there? No, I'm going the wrong way, sorry. There we go. His parents transferred him to Cheam in Hampshire where Philip had been sent at the same age. Charles was acutely homesick, hugged his teddy bear, and kept to himself. In his five years, he made no lasting friendships. One of the most revealing and poignant moments about Charles's childhood was revealed to me by his cousin, Lady Pamela Hicks, who described a time when eight-year-old Charles was invited to her family's home for lunch, and he was eating wild strawberries. As he was sitting there, picking the stems off the strawberries to eat them. His uh, great aunt, Lady Edwina Mountbatten looked at him and said, Charles, that's not the way to eat them. What you should do is pick them up by the stems and dip them in sugar. A few moments later, Pamela Hicks looked across the table and saw this poor boy trying to reattach all the stems to the strawberries. (laughs) Charles was, um, in that moment, It said so much to me about his vulnerability, his eagerness to please, and his need for approval. Prince Philip also insisted that at age 13, Charles attend his alma mater, Gordonston, in an isolated part of northeastern Scotland that one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting called the Back of Beyond. The school sought to build character through physical challenges, such as runs at dawn, followed by frigid showers. Philip, the ultimate alpha male, had flourished there with his athletic ability, his leadership qualities, and his resilient temperament. He was determined to mold Charles in his own image, but his timid son described his five years at Gordonson as nothing less than a prison sentence. He was bullied at night in the dormitories, and on the rugby field, he was routinely punched. One of his classmates told me that Charles was stoic and never once hit back. Philip intensified the rigor of his son's education by dispatching him to the Australian Outback for six months at a wilderness school. Charles survived endurance tests such as 70-mile hikes across country in blistering heat But even more importantly, he showed his father that he was not, in fact, a weakling. He was liberated by the informality of a country without a class system. He did not mind at all that his fellow students called him a pommy, which is is Australian slang for Englishman. He also developed confidence as he faced crowds at royal events for the first time and discovered that he could talk to strangers. When he left in July 1966, he smiled as his schoolmates gave him three sh- cheers for Prince Charles, a real pommy bastard. <laughs> Back at Gordonston, Charles bonded with two young teachers. His art master was the school's quiet, eager, yet quiet alter ego, who had the mind of a Victorian matron and loved to gossip he nurtured Charles's appreciation of high culture and he played the piano while the prince played the cello at weekend house parties hosted by uh, Scottish aristocrats. The other teacher, Eric Anderson, encouraged the prince to perform Shakespeare on stage and gave him the lead in Macbeth. Um, and uh, he would become a lifelong companion to the prince who years later would enlist him to tutor Diana in Shakespeare and poetry, neither of which would capture her interest. But as was the case at Cheam, Charles made no friends among his peers at Gordonston. His parents, surprisingly, admitted that the school had driven him further inward and that he had been a square peg in a round hole. Yet, Gordonston did something for Charles. It put a little grit in his oyster and gave him an inner steeliness and made him less conventional. Its emphasis on community service inspired Charles's later efforts to improve the lives of underprivileged teenagers. His three years at Cambridge University offered his first taste of freedom and supposedly a normal existence, but all his companions were hand-picked and his rooms at Trinity College were equipped with a private bathroom and a kitchen, which none of the other students had. He had failed at the classic schoolboy team sports such as cricket and rugby and soccer, so he took up polo to please his father, and he practiced relentlessly on a wooden horse at Windsor Castle until he was ready to take the field. As time went on, the sport would become an essential release for his frustrations, especially during his unhappy marriage to Diana. Without Polo, which one of his cousins called aggressive meditation, Charles said he would have gone stark staring mad. The biggest event of his college years was his investiture as the Prince of Wales. Before the ceremony in July 1969, he spent two months at the University College Wales learning about Welsh culture, traditions, and enough language to make his first speech. The elaborate investiture was held in the courtyard of the castle where the first English Prince of Wales was born in 1284. After crowning her son, the queen draped him with an ermine-trimmed cape. My mama was busy dressing me rather like she did when I was small, he later said. When he met with reporters at the end of his first year at Cambridge, one of them called Charles a sweet virgin boy. He was not only inexperienced with girls, he was afraid of them. But the master of Trinity College, Rab Butler, arranged... His first romance with Lucia Santa Cruz, a beautiful Chilean woman, five years older. She was the daughter of a diplomat and as brainy as she was gorgeous with two university degrees, which was highly unusual um, in those days for young women. In the words of Rab Butler's wife, Lucia was someone upon whom Charles could safely cut his teeth. One of the Queen's senior advisors discreetly arranged safe havens for the couple to have assignations. The romance didn't last, at least in part because uh, Lucia was Roman Catholic and it was prohibited for the heir to the throne to marry a Catholic. But he remained friends with Lucia, and she changed Charles's life in the summer of 1972. He was coming to her London apartment for a drink, so she invited Camilla Shand, her friend and downstairs neighbor, to join them. Charles lost his heart to Camilla almost immediately. He was drawn to her lively personality, her down-to-earth irreverence, and her love of the countryside and all of its sporting pursuits that he shared. Most of all, she gave him a sympathetic ear and the affection that he yearned for. You could see what a man could see, her friend Lady Annabelle Goldsmith told me, an intensely warm maternal laughing creature with enormous sex appeal. That magnetism is evident in this photo taken at a polo match not long after they met. Her family was upper class with one major claim to fame. Her great-grandmother, Alice Keppel, was the mistress of Charles's great-great-grandfather, King Edward VII. She was called La Favorita. Camilla admired her racy grandmother so much that she kept her portrait prominently displayed in her drawing room where it is to this day. Camilla also learned the necessity of discretion from Alice, who burned nearly all of her correspondence with the king after he died. When Charles and Camilla met, he was 23, and she was 25. She had left school at 16, and while she was racing around London with the smart set and fox hunting near her family home in East Sussex, Charles was still a lad in boarding school. By 1972, she had been involved in an affair for six years with a dashing cavalry officer by the name of Andrew Parker Bowles. As her lifelong friend, Lord Patrick Beresford, told me, Camilla was absolutely potty about Andrew, who had a roving eye for other well-born women, including Charles's sister, Princess Anne. And there has to be a Venn diagram there, but I haven't quite figured it out. (laughs) But starting that summer, Andrew was conveniently on overseas duty for six months, So Camilla was free to enjoy the attentions of the heir to the throne who was thrilled to have found a woman he could love and cherish. While Charles was powerfully attracted to her, he was not ready to settle down. Also, as his cousin and godmother, Patricia Mountbatten, told me, Camilla had a history. And Charles was expected to marry a woman who at least appeared virginal. Still, when he left England in January 1973 for his first posting with the Royal Navy, he expected Camilla to be there for him when he returned eight months later. Meanwhile, her father and Andrew's father, who were very good friends, conspired to publish an engagement announcement in the Times of London in March 1973, thereby forcing Andrew to propose to Camilla after dragging his feet for so many years. And I'm sorry, but I don't think even the crown could make that one up. They were married in the Guards Chapel in London on the 4th of July, with the Queen Mother and Princess Anne in attendance. Charles felt, felt blindsided, and he could not understand why his blissful relationship with Camilla had ended so abruptly. During his five years with the Royal Navy, Charles checked all the right boxes. He served as a commander on a a minesweeper, but his time at sea was not a major formative experience for him. As one of his close advisors told me, the Navy is not at the core of the man. But as an officer in the Navy, Charles fell under the sway of his great uncle, Lord Louis Mountbatten, known to all as Dickie, The younger brother of Prince Philip's mother, Mountbatten, was a heroic figure to Charles. A decorated naval officer in World War II, he had served as the last viceroy of India, as, as first sea lord and chief of the defense staff. Dickie's godmother was Queen Victoria, who had held him in her arms during his christening which was one of the many magical links he had with the royal family's past. As Charles's parents were going about their royal duties, Dicky gave the insecure prince time, attention, encouragement, and affection. But he also gave Charles genuinely bad advice about love and marriage, <laughs> urging him to sow his wild oats and have as many affairs as possible before settling down with a sweet character girl he could place on a pedestal. So rather than learning from mature relationships, Charles spent his 20s in a series of brief flings. The most surprising of these was an American admiral's daughter, Laura Jo Watkins. Charles met her in San Diego on shore leave in March, 1974. Although at age 20, she was five years younger, She astutely sized him up as an innocent with the contemplative streak of an old soul. He invited her to London, where reporters pursued her until she had to flee the American ambassador's residence dressed in a sailor's suit. The press thought the romance was over, but Charles secretly invited Laura to stay with him in Nassau, And I learned how a sympathetic friend arranged for the couple to spend three idyllic days at a beach house appropriately named Xanadu. They only saw each other one more time. She, too, was not only an American, but she was Catholic. But they did maintain a friendly correspondence. And when he married Diana, Laura Jo Watson sat unnoticed in the congregation at St. Paul's Cathedral. All the women he dated during the 1970s, many of them daughters of dukes and earls and other noblemen, fell short, including Diana's older sister, Sarah. The most promising prospect was Charles's cousin, Amanda Natchbull. She was Dickie Mountbatten's granddaughter, too. She was nine years younger, but she was self-possessed, smart, sensible, and strong enough to be one of the first girls to attend Gordonston. Dickie promoted the match, and Charles even proposed marriage, but she politely turned him down because there was no chemistry, and she didn't want to settle for anything less than a love match. Wherever Charles went, he drew crowds of adoring fans, On a trip to Los Angeles, his fingers were swollen and covered with cuts from the diamond rings of women who had grasped his hands tightly. The tabloids called him Action Man, and his exploits dominated the headlines. He played polo, he learned how to ski, and he took up windsurfing. He also began fox hunting, at least in part to be near Camilla Parker Bowles. They had crossed paths again, when Andrew's polo team competed against Charles's. And when the Parker Bowleses had their first child, they asked Charles to be one of his seven godparents. Only days after the christening in February 1975, Charles joined Camilla on the field at the prestigious Beaufort Hunt. Now, this was noteworthy because Charles had been terrified of jumping on horseback since childhood but he overcame his fears, and he threw himself into the sport. He and Camilla both rode with the Beaufort and shared the thrill of the chase. In the following years, he kept company with the Parker Bowleses, and Camilla became his confidant. Although Camilla and Andrew had a second child on New Year's Day in 1978, she had actually given up on her husband, who was compulsively unfaithful. Toward the end of 1978, Charles and Camilla resumed their love affair. By then, Charles was starting to develop projects on his own and to create a role that went far beyond simply cutting ribbons and unveiling plaques. He had a private income of more than a half million dollars a year, which would be $2.5 million in today's currency. His first major project was The Prince's Trust, which he set up in 1976. His idea was to transform the lives of disadvantaged youth by giving them small grants for self-help projects. His hope was that these young people could achieve something and become responsible adults. It would be his most celebrated charity, with an impressive track record over four decades of helping more than 800,000 young people learn skills and find employment. They even included a prison inmate who used $5,000 in seed money to build a software business that he sold for $30 million. Charles celebrated his 40th birthday with 1,500 Grateful Prince's Trust recipients and danced vigorously with three young women, one of whom said afterward, he told me I was a good mover. He dances well for an old man. (laughs) The public, Charles, was busy launching charities, but the private man had become a full-fledged spiritual seeker under the influence of a series of gurus. At Gordonston, he became fascinated by mystics who claimed to communicate with those who had gone over into the afterlife. At Cambridge, the dean of the chapel at Trinity introduced him to the work of Carl Jung and pushed him to explore his inner self. When Charles took up watercolors at 21, he said that painting transported him into another dimension and refreshed his soul. In his mid 20s, he befriended Lawrence Vanderpost, a well known South African writer. Vanderpost deepened Charles's knowledge of Jung and taught him that primitive people should be revered for their relationship to the spirit of the earth. With Vanderpost's help, Charles began his lifelong quest to build connections with nature and between disciplines, religions, and cultures, an effort that would be one of Charles's defining traits. Charles also recorded his dreams for Vander Post's wife, Ingerid, who was a Jungian analyst, um, and she interpreted them, and over the next five years, he periodically met with her for therapy sessions. She helped Charles understand his feelings and his relationships, examine the complexes that tied him up in knots, and find ways to channel his creativity and intellectual impulses. In August 1979, Dickie Mountbatten was assassinated by terrorists from the Irish Republican Army. Charles felt agony, disbelief, and what he described as wretched numbness. In his eulogy at Dickie's memorial service, he raged at what he called the IRA's subhuman extremism and mindless cruelty. He had Camilla to console him, but he needed a wife to support and understand him. And at age 31, he was feeling pressure from his family and from the media to settle down at last, to do his duty, and to produce the next heir to the throne. He proposed to 19-year-old Lady Diana Spencer after they had been together just a dozen times, with few private moments. He figured that he could learn to love Diana, who had charmed him with her beauty and her warmth, but their 12-year age gap was unbridgeable. They had no intellectual connections, few mutual friends, and no interests in common. Nor did Charles know that Diana had a history of emotional instability dating back to her parents' traumatic divorce when she was six years old. His hasty choice set off the most acrimonious and mortifying 16 years of his life. It was beyond imagining that what had seemed like a fairy tale wedding would lead to divorce, and barely a year later, Diana's death at age 36 in a car crash in Paris 20 years ago this August. He had tried to make his marriage work and had given up his affair with Camilla for five years until, as he admitted in a television documentary in 1994, his relationship with Diana had irretrievably broken down. He confided to his good friend, Nancy Reagan, telling her his marriage to Diana was like a Greek tragedy. Yet during those personally painful years, Charles came into his own as Prince of Wales. He sounded an early warning on the impact of man-made pollution on the environment, and he became an evangelist on the dangers of climate change. A key influence on his thinking was Al Gore, a senator at the time. Charles also challenged the medical establishment for failing to treat the whole patient He criticized modern farming for its use of chemicals and genetically modified crops. Most notably, he excoriated the architectural establishment for being elitist and failing to consider the wishes of ordinary people. His most famous speech in 1984 attacked the proposed new addition to the National Gallery in London, as a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend. The eventual winning design combined classicism and modernism in a building that fit perfectly with the National Gallery. It was Charles's first major public victory. With his enterprises and his charities, Charles was determined to convince everyone that he was a serious social observer and to make the world a better place, at least by his own lights. One of the Queen's uh, long t- long-term uh, private secretaries, Sir Martin Charteris, once told her that her job was to spread a carpet of happiness. But Charles looked at that carpet and preferred to see the holes and the tears, and he wanted to fix them. If the if, <clears throat> so as thought and as thoughts occur to him he ch- he jots them down while tramping across the countryside keeping endless bits of paper in every single jacket at meals he has a silver notepad by his side and late in the evening he furiously writes letters and memos always with a fountain pen he shuns computers and he avoids what he calls emails instead He fills the pages of his crested stationery with his distinctive, thick handwriting, which led people to call them his black spider letters. And this, I should add, is a photo of a speech that he gave in Sri Lanka to a meeting of the Commonwealth leaders, and it shows pretty clearly what his black spider letters look like. He sends bunches of them every day to advisors, to friends, to politicians, gardeners, architects even people he may have just met at a reception. They range from detailed instructions for his projects to tender condolence notes going on for page and page and page. At Highgrove, his estate in Gloucestershire, he created an ambitious garden that was, by his description, the outward expression of my inner self. Its distinctive features include a neo-Victorian stumpery, And little do visitors know that the golden hedges clipped into eccentric shapes were inspired by platonic and Archimedean solids representing earth, water, fire, and the universe. He plants trees by shouting instructions through through a megaphone while standing on his front doorstep to ensure that each sapling is in the best position. He sometimes even lies on the floor, near the windows of his house, to eavesdrop on the conversations of tourists admiring the garden. <laughs> Tucked away from his prying eyes is Charles's sanctuary, that one prominent American arch- architect described to me as druidic in its style. The intimate design was based on Charles's exact measurements fingertip to fingertip, like Leonardo da Vinci, as he has described it. The bricks are made of local clay and straw. <clears throat> there is no electricity, and everything is handmade, including Byzantine icons custom-crafted by a former hermit Charles met on a retreat in Mount Athos in, Gre- in Greece. Charles calls this sanctuary the place where nobody can get to me. Since Charles does not carry keys to enter the sanctuary, he manipulates two of four doorknobs in a secret combination. Charles, as you can tell, is an unusual mixture of traditional and modern. He is a strong proponent of green energy, and Poundberry, his model town in Dorset, uses plant waste to produce renewable fuel in a cutting-edge facility. Yet he revels in being retro. He supports workshops that teach thatching and stonemasonry, and he owns a pair of shoes made from 18th-century reindeer leather. These aren't the uh, particular shoes, (laughs) but you can see the weathering and the wear in this picture that I took in Sri Lanka. On his organic farm, Charles refuses to use any pesticides on his crops. Once, when asked why his wheat field was completely free of weeds, Charles said they were removed mechanically. In fact, workmen would lie on flatbed trucks to pick the weeds as the trucks slowly advanced across the field, which was not exactly a technique that could apply to large-scale farming. Charles raises uh, rare breeds of livestock and promotes the use of heavy horses as well as scythes. And he, earned the, and he learned the ancient art of hedge laying. From October through March, he spends hours bending and cutting branches with axes and hand saws to construct his hedges. You can probably gather that eccentricity defines Charles's personality. He pumps out his bathtub by hand to water his garden through a plastic hose extending out the bathroom window. <laughs> He uses special salt provided by his staff at formal banquets, and his cloakroom at Kensington Palace was fitted out with antique toilets for coat racks. The architect who created Charles's sanctuary told me that the prince hired him after noticing that his shoes had been mended. To Charles, this was a sure sign that the architect understood the value of preserving something well-made. When Charles was restoring the run-down Dumfries House estate in Scotland, he decided to add what he called a heartbeat to the rooms, so he brought in 50 antique clocks and spent the better part of a day figuring out where to place 23 of them. He grew up in a cocoon of privilege and strict protocol, yet he connects easily with salt-of-the-earth characters, as he calls them, that he meets in the countryside, often stopping by their cottages and stables for tea or slow gin. In 1983, he secretly spent several days in Devon to learn what it was like to be a laborer on a small farm. He wrote to a friend that a new sense of proportion flooded into my semi-crazed being, and life suddenly took on its true meaning. From tilling the soil and caring for animals, he said he learned the central purpose of our existence our dependent on natural things and the ultimate emptiness of the search after sophistication. He added that he feared such thoughts would cause him to be branded in unkind circles as a goat freak. After the death of Diana, Charles rebuilt his life taking comfort from a sign that he hung in his dressing room that said, be patient and endure. His crucial achievement was to to persuade the world that he was a loving and responsible parent to William and Harry. One of the most unfair accusations made by Diana in the biography that Andrew Morton published and that she authorized in 1992 was that Charles was a bad father. There was a moment during a trip to Canada that Charles and Diana took William and Harry on um, the Royal Yacht Britannia that made that impression really take hold. It occurred as Diana ran to her sons with outstretched arms and hugged them before masses of cameras to create an iconic image of the princess as an affectionate mother. Charles lagged behind his wife, and he, too, embraced his boys. But with the exception of one French-Canadian newspaper, the media ignored Charles' hug, which was not the story that they wanted to tell. A woman who witnessed the moment shared this newspaper clipping with me. It's the only evidence that exists. When I tried to find a picture for my book, it had disappeared from the photographer's archive. Prince Philip ruled his eldest son with an iron grip until Charles left the Navy and began creating his own role. Charles gave his sons more latitude to have a relatively normal life, even shopping at supermarkets. Their grandmother was an important force as well. William called the Queen a strong female influence he could look up to. He and Harry grew close to their grandmother, much as Charles had relied on the Queen Mother for so many years. When she celebrated her 100th birthday, she wanted Charles and Charles alone by her side. As one of William and Harry's advisors told me, they were two guys on a raft after the shipwreck in their family, and they made it to the other shore, which brought them together. Unlike Charles and his siblings, who all work on their own, William and Harry knew that they could have a multiplier effect if they worked as a team. As they grew older, Charles sensibly permitted them to choose experienced advisors to guide them in crafting their roles, two highly respected military officers and a veteran diplomat who had served as Britain's ambassador to the United States. They also didn't want to start charities and initiatives from scratch and run them the way their father had done, which required constant fundraising. When they mapped out their charitable foundation in 2009, they took their cue from something called catalytic philanthropy, which was developed at Stanford University. They focused on their areas of interest, military veterans, conservation, disadvantaged young people, and increasingly and Um, very visibly over the past six months, mental health. They provided seed capital, raised awareness, set a clear end date, and moved on. After William married Kate, she turned their team into a dynamic trio. William is keeping things simple, proceeding in a measured way, looking at the long game. His views reflect a broader public consensus than his father's more controversial approach. As his senior advisor told me, William is like his grandmother. He gets on with his duty. He dedicates himself to doing his job. He is not flashy. He's not an entrepreneur. And he's not a ruffler. He has also made an ideal match in Kate, who understands how to use her charisma and her style but she keeps the spotlight on her husband. William and Kate combine informality and dignity, and they understand the power that comes from mystery. As one of the Queen's cousins told me, she can see continuity with William and Kate and their two children, George and Charlotte, and that has changed her life. Over the past five years, Charles has been streamlining his philanthropies while assuming more work on behalf of the Queen when she began stepping back as she approached her 90th birthday last year. Since 2008, her principal private secretary has been quietly working with Charles, giving him support through this transition period. The Queen shrewdly understood that um, the value of having an intermediary to speak directly to her son in ways that she could not. He could offer Charles advice and make requests that might otherwise be resisted. Charles is now more comfortable in his own skin, and the warmth of his relationship with his mother was evident in his 90th birthday tribute film, when they reminisced together while watching old home movies. Charles has lately been rewarded with the public approval from his parents that he has craved for decades. Three years ago, his parents traveled to Dumfries House to see the progress of Charles's restoration. His mother officially opened the five-acre Queen Elizabeth Walled Garden, a three million dollar project funded by donors that Charles had recruited. And finally, last year the Queen gave her blessing to what Charles has called the project of my lifetime when she spent an afternoon at Poundbury, his model town that had become a thriving community of 2,500 people. In a high-profile ceremony, she unveiled a -a nine-and-a-half-foot statue of Charles's beloved queen mother. The principal moderating force in Charles's life has been Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, since their wedding in 2005. Their love story a story of love interrupted and ultimately fulfilled, has stretched over more than 40 years. It has been framed by a deep and abiding bond, by Charles's loyalty and devotion, and Camilla's understanding and support. Joan Rivers, who befriended Camilla in the years after Diana's death, saw her as someone who was a little rough around the edges, but in a good way. Someone who could be rowdy with him, and silly with him, and normal with him. She also keeps him level, as was clear one Saturday afternoon in the spring of 1998 at his High Grove estate, at a time when she was still very much in the shadows. Charles was supposed to take a helicopter to a charity golf match and receive a million-pound check for the Prince's Trust one of his aides arrived to accompany him. But it was the weekend, and Charles was enjoying a day off, and he refused to go. Look, come on, Camilla said. Who else can go for 45 minutes in a helicopter and return in time for tea? And besides, and to collect a check for a million pounds? And then she added, I wish I was being paid that daily rate. <laughs> Charles couldn't help laughing and he did his duty and that moment to me encapsulated the dynamic of their relationship. At age 57 Camilla adapted well to royal routines yet she preserved her old relaxed life as a countrywoman by keeping her own house near High Grove. She retreats there to cook roasts for her friends, to shell peas in the garden with her grandchildren, to be as untidy as she pleases, and to flee her husband's ever-present staff. Most important, she won over the queen, who likes her down-to-earth unfussiness and that she loves her dogs and her horses. Camilla has settled on her own adaptation of the queen's royal style, smartly tailored suits and dresses that loosely skim her frame. And, like the queen, she has kept a consistent hairstyle, thanks to the hairdresser who travels with her and always has a supply of fake hair to make sure that her tiaras are always, uncom- are always comfortable. Camilla will almost certainly be crowned queen when Charles takes the throne. Just as the queen mother was, during the coronation of King George VI. Queen Elizabeth II has shown her approval of Camilla with some specific honors. The Royal Family Order, which is a small, hand-painted brooch of the sovereign to be worn at formal occasions. She's also given her the Dame Grand Cross, which is the highest female rank in the Royal Victorian Order. And the most explicit sign was the Queen's elevation of Camilla a year ago to the Privy Council, which is the prince's principal advisory board for the, for the monarch. When the Queen dies, Privy Council members are part of the larger accession council that meets within 24 hours to hear the new sovereign's proclamation and religious oath. Now the Queen was ensuring that Camilla would be part of that important ceremony. Constitutional experts say that under English common law, Camilla has every right to be queen, and that to have anything less would be unacceptably inferior. Queen Elizabeth II now has three generations of heirs in direct succession, Charles, William, and George, but there is no mechanism to skip her eldest son and give the crown to William. Charles turns 70 next year, so his reign will be far shorter than the Queen's record-breaking 65 years and counting. For that reason, Prince Charles will be remembered mainly for his achievements as Prince of Wales. Mary Soames, the youngest daughter of Sir Winston Churchill and a big fan of Prince Charles, told me that he had improved each shining hour in his wait for the crown. As king, he has the potential to inspire as a unifying force above and beyond politics with a different style and tone from the queen. He can be expected to show his feelings more and to speak more naturally and probably more frequently than his mother. But by conducting himself with dignity and seriousness of purpose, yet keeping a lid on his opinions, By respecting royal traditions, by showing his sense of duty as well as his humanity and his charm, he could well win the affection and admiration he has long sought. Thank you.